0: When you first get married, there's a question that people love to ask you, and it is, so how did you two meet? Now, when I got married, which was two and a half years ago, uh, people asked me, so how did you and Haley meet? And and it was really easy for me. I I remember I just said, you know, uh, we've known each other for almost 11 years now, 12 years. We met at um, Camp Sharon and Lake of the Ozarks. I was a camp director, and she was a first-year counselor from Mid-America Church University, University. Man, I was there at that booth, you know, checking all the volunteers in as they came. And she walked through the door, and she was wearing khaki shorts and a Mid-America t-shirt and flip-flops and her hair pulled back. And I just said, man, that's a girl. I'm going to marry someday. And it only took me 11 years to get there. And I was like, this is the one. I mean... This is going to, and all week long, you know, I was just, every time she'd walk into a room, I was just smiling, just being, you know, just like, oh, man, look at this is perfect. If you can see the look on her face right now. <laughs> but as soon as I told that story, she's like, well, that's not exactly how it went. She says, as a matter of fact, that first year at not you didn't like it. And I was like, what? No way I didn't like it. Oh, she said, oh, yeah, and I have proof. And I was like, there's no proof to say that we got off on a bad foot whenever we first met each other. And she's like, oh, no. Whenever I became, what was your role later? Yeah, director of, it's, it's okay, director of admissions. She said, I went back and I looked at my files of all of the, the what is it called, the, um, the camp reviews, you know, the team reviews. And she said, I was looking through those reviews, and I remember your review, and And specifically, you gave me a terrible review. You said something like, I wasn't a team player and I caused a camp revolt or something. And here, all those things are true. Look, I was young and I would do silly things like like we would do teams, and teams had to play against each other in the camp games, you know how this goes right, Troy. And I had this great idea that whatever team came in with the least amount of points at the end of the week would have to serve dinner and clean up for the rest of the camp. Now, being a football player and, like, winners and losers, that sounds like a great idea. But for somebody who was on a really bad team, which she was on, um, <laughs> it was not a great idea. And it wasn't. But but so she revolted that week. And, and I just remember that, that sometimes we have encounters with people, and we may get off on a rocky start, um, and we may have people in our lives that... That when we meet them or when we interact with them, it may turn out to be really good or may turn out to be really bad. We really don't know what those encounters are going to be like until we're in the midst of. them. And that's what we're talking about today. We're talking. We started a series last week called "Divine Encounters," and we were looking at the life of Jesus. and And Jesus was always on point. He was always on purpose. He was always on message. He when he, when, he, when he started his ministry, he said, this is what I'm about. I'm about setting people free. I'm about restoring sight to the blind. I'm about you know, showing how great my father is. This is what I do. And to the very end, when he took his last breath, he said, Father, forgive them for the things that they have done. And he said, it is finished. He gave his life for us. He was on point. But throughout his walk, he always encountered and bumped into people that, that he made a difference in their lives. And they were divine encounters. This week, if you pull out your notes, we're talking about a divine encounter that happens in Mark chapter 5. And it's actually a fascinating story. And this is what it says, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 34. It says, when Jesus had, had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by boat. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and he pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come. Put your hands on her, so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went under my neck, starry, whatever, circular It says, A large crowd followed and pressed around. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So this woman has an issue of blood, it's been going on for 12 years, she hasn't been able to find help, doctors have been taking advantage of her, saying we can heal you, this is going to be good, this will work, and now she's broke, she has nothing left, she has no way to get better, and she sees Jesus. It says, when she heard about Jesus, in verse 27, she came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touched his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that, that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, him, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? He's like, There's there's hundreds, there's thousands of people bumping into you, reaching out, touching you. How in the world can you ask who touched me? The answer is that everybody's touching me. And he says, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He says that the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, she told the whole truth. Then we're going to come back to that, too. She told told him the whole truth. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Arthur Lampett was 75 years old, and uh, roughly 10 years ago, Arthur went through a metal detector at a courthouse, and his body set the thing off, which was really weird, um, because he didn't have anything on him, and so it kind of of threw him off a little bit, so he went and got an x-ray, and the x-ray showed that there was a foreign slender object in his forearm, and the speculation began. I mean, how did this metal object get to his forearm? This kid said it could possibly have been this. He was saying it was this. So where in the world did this come from? The only thing that author could think of was that back in 1963, he crashed his Thunderbird into a truck, and the accident was so bad that Illinois media immediately said that initially reported it as a fatality. And his family told us was telling us to the post dispatch. It said that the had suffered a severely broken hip, and it wasn't looking good. And, and, and so because they were all focused on the hip and all the breaks and keeping them alive, they didn't really spend much time on the little cut that was on his arm. They just kind of sewed it up and, you know, made sure everything was okay. He just figured it was cut up by glass. So his family began wondering if someone back in 1963 accidentally left a medical instrument in there, um, the newspaper, the newspaper. But Arthur was just a little kind of guy. And so, so he just didn't really think anything about it. He didn't worry about it. it. It didn't really mess him up at all. You know, It was just a part of his life. Until one day, he was picking up a heavy object, and something popped. And he looked down, and he saw a bulge on his forearm. And the bulging was getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Which wasn't a good sign. So Arthur went to the doctor. Um, he still didn't know what it could be, so he unearthed some old photos from the wreck. And as he was looking at the dash of the Thunderbird, he realized that the turn signal was missing. The turn signal was missing. It had to be It had to be that. And he told his kids, I'm like, no, there's no way you have a turn signal in your arm for the last, <laughs> for the last 50 years. Since 1963, he said, I, I really think that's it. And Arthur Lampett was proven right on Wednesday. After 45-minute surgical procedure, his doctor came out to tell Betty that a turn signal lever had just been removed for her husband's arm, and it was seven inches long. For some reason, the body had just covered a protective pocket around it, usually when you get a foreign object stuck in your body. An infection will begin and your body will say, Hey, something's wrong. But for some reason, it created a protective pocket around it. And the whole time, he had something underneath the skin that was causing him pain. I think there's a couple pictures up here. This is a and that's the turn signal. I think there's another close up picture that was in his car for over 50 years. For 51 years. He had been living with a seven-inch turn signal lever lodged in his, uh, his arm. Can I tell you something about Arthur? Is it his story? It's a lot like our story. We all carry wounds beneath the surface. We all carry wounds that, that can come from our past. Maybe it was some sort of abuse or some sort of rejection that happened when we were a teenager or a young adult. Um, it could be the fact that we were we were bullied, and and that bullying just that bullying just created a a scar inside of us that, that may have resulted in anger or isolation or 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 depression. Um, but there's some something going on. Maybe it was some sort of neglect, you know, where a parent or or something you, you felt neglect in your life. and You didn't have a need, man. You have the scar inside. Some of us it could be it could be something having to do with our marriage, and it's on. Rocky ground, and it has been. For some of us, it may be a sin that we committed, and we continue to commit, and and it's created this wound, this callousness inside of us because we haven't dealt with it over the years. And it's there, and and it's just (laughs) under the skin, but it's there. So we come back to the lady in the story that we read in Mark chapter five, and it says that she's standing in the crowd. And she's bleeding, and she's been bleeding for years. See, I've been in the church for, for forty years now. I've been a pastor for I don't know, right at twenty or so. Um, yeah, right at twenty years. And one of the things that I know about the church is that we, the church, unfortunately, is full of liars. What I mean by that is this: is that don't take it too hard on yourself. But we have a tendency we we get up in the morning and, and we and we're just not having a great day. And and it's a Sunday morning and we come to church and we walk through the door and we, we talk to our, we talk ourselves up. We put that smile on our face and we don't really feel like smiling. And somebody comes up to you, and it's like, "Hey, how are you doing? It's so good to see you." And the fact is, is that they probably had a pretty terrible morning too, and they really don't care how you are going to respond. <laughs> But they just do it out of nicety, right? And then you respond, "Oh, everything's great," and, and it's really not. You know, inside you're you're frustrated, inside you're you're disappointed, inside you're you're just wrestling with serious stuff. But that I'm doing really great. How are you doing? And the truth is, is that you feel so terrible inside that you don't give a rip how they respond, right? And you probably don't even listen long enough to hear how they respond because you're already thinking about going to your seat and sitting down and doing what you have to do to get through the morning. We're full of liars. It's just part of the church. And and it's just not a church. This very thing happens at home. This very thing happens at work. This very thing happens when we bump into people at the store. It just happens. Over There's a part of us. Something about us that doesn't feel like we can expose those bleeding places in our lives and let people live and find healing. Well, this morning, this morning is an opportunity for us to, to pull back the veil a little bit. You know, the Wizard of Oz, let somebody behind the curtain and expose who we really are. And maybe expose it to God for the first time in many of us so that we can receive.
1: So what are some
0: things that we can learn from the woman and from Jairus? And the first thing is this, is that your pain doesn't have to be terminal to be important. Your pain doesn't have to be terminal to be important. You see, sometimes the stuff that's just underneath the skin isn't really that big. Sometimes it's not really that huge. I mean, look at the story. Where is, where is Jesus going with Jairus before he's interrupted? Going to his home. Why? Because his daughter is dying. I mean, she is she's on the cusp. She could go any minute. She is dying. And Jesus, Jesus is on his way to heal her and to take care of her when this woman interrupts and stops and pauses. Here's the deal about the woman. This issue has been going on for how many years? What what did my notes say before I dropped out? What did it say? Twelve years. Twelve years this has been going on. This is not a major, I mean, it's a major issue, but it's not a life-threatening issue. The daughter was a life-threatening issue. Her, she's going to survive. She's going to be okay. It's really unfortunate. It's really frustrating, and I can't even imagine what it would be like to be her, but, but it's not terminal. But Jesus stops, right? I mean, what would it have been like to be Jairus and to stand there? Jesus, I mean, you're, you're coming to my house, right? What are you, what are you doing? I, we don't have time for this. This woman, I mean, she's going you were supposed to help me. But Jesus stops and he takes his time. Because even though her issue wasn't terminal, it wasn't. And I don't know if you've ever felt like this before, but you come to church and you think about the issues happening in your life and then you think about the issues happening in someone else's life and the fact that they're battling cancer or the fact that someone died or the fact that, you know, dot, dot, dot. You think, my stuff? My stuff's not that big. I mean, God doesn't really have time for my stuff because of all the other important things happening around. And it's just not true. God has nothing better to do than to meet you where you are. So whatever you're going through. What I love working about working with small children, I was a children's pastor for a couple for about three and a half years in Missouri. What I love about working with children is that when you ask children for prayer requests, you have no clue what they're going to say, right? I mean, it could be their puppy is sick. It could be, it could be you know, they, they tripped at the park. It could be, you know, that they, they lost their dolly. And, and all these things, and they just tell you, and sometimes they tell you some really interesting things about their parents and their families and their siblings. It's just like, oh, if your mom knew, but you were saying that, she might not let you come to school, like, Um...
1: But what I love about it is
0: because they get it. They'll tell you everything, even if it's big or even if it's small, because to them, it's all important. And for some reason, along the way, we start thinking the issues that we have in our lives aren't really that big a deal. And the truth is, the lost dolls and the puppies, they're really not that big a deal when you compare them to marriages on the rocks, or finances almost out, or terminal cancer. But they are just as important to God. Look at the scripture. Matthew 10, 29-31. It says, what is the price of two sparrows? Jesus asks. One copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered, all seven of them. They're all numbered. <laughs> so read this next part with you. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Jesus is saying, if God cares about that, then he, you are so much more important. Whatever it is, you're so important to him that he's numbered all the hairs on your head. It's just not that he's counted them all and he knows how many there are, but when one falls out, he can say, that's number 2,723. You know, that that one, that was 2,723 that fell out. They're all numbered. You are important. Your pain doesn't have to be terminal to be important We you learn from the story. Here's a second thought. Don't just follow Christ. Touch him. Don't just follow Christ. Touch him. Jean Potts, five years ago, six years ago, um, she's 45, she's driving with her husband outside of St. Louis. And, 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 and while her husband was in the passenger seat, he noticed that the car was slowly drifting off the side of the road. And so he said, what are you doing? And he looked over at his wife. And his wife was slumped over the steering wheel, and her lips were turning blue. And so from the passenger side, he reached over, and he was able to pull the car over and get it in the park, and he got her out. By the time he got her out, um, she had stopped bleeding. She was having a heart attack. And so he started immediately doing CPR on, Gene, or on Jim, and he um, and, and called an ambulance and was just taking care of her until the ambulance arrived. When the ambulance arrived, they took her to a hospital, and they had to, help to shock her heart numerous times. She was suffering from, I'm going to get this wrong, ventricular fibrillation. Is that right? Ventricular fibrillation. I can't say fast. fibrillation. But isn't that when your heart is beating so fast that it will eventually stop? And so, so they had to keep shocking her to get her heart into a normal rhythm. What was... What was interesting is that after they put the pacemaker in, um, the, the, the interesting is is that they took her to the hospital that she worked at. She was an E.R. nurse. And as the newspaper was interviewing her, she said, you know, a few days ago I started feeling these symptoms. You know, I knew something wasn't right. I knew something was going on with my heart. I shouldn't have been driving. I shouldn't have been out. I shouldn't have been walking. You know, I should have been in the hospital getting help. I knew all of this, but I didn't. The thing is, is that that is us. I mean, she was a nurse. She knew there was something wrong with her body. And she was around doctors all day long in an ER, and she didn't bother to tell anybody. See, it doesn't do any good to be in the proximity of a doctor because we don't tell them what's wrong. And here we are gathered together this morning, worshiping our Creator. Without really talking to God, without really telling Him all the stuff that's happening in our lives, how sad would it have been for that woman standing in the crowd if she just would have stood and followed Jesus, listened and thought, I could get healed if I touched Him, and never did story would be a tragedy. Look at the scripture. Psalms 139 23. It says search me God and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. This word know um, in in Hebrew is actually the word "yada," And, and, And what it means is to know intimately, to to really know a person's heart, to really know their their motivation, to really know their intentions, to really know their anxious thoughts, to experience what's it's like a level of intimacy God, really deep down know everything that's happening in my life, really know me Just just don't know me by name but know everything there is to know about me I don't want you to just pass by, I need you to touch me, I need you Heal me. I need you to rescue me. See, often when we come to church without really touching God, it takes honesty, it takes vulnerability, it takes openness, and it takes an act of faith to touch Him. So don't just follow Christ. Touch Him. Don't just come on Sundays and sing the Psalms and listen to the messages. But really experience grief Tell them what's happening in your life. Here's your first thought. Sometimes healing healing requires risk. You probably think, oh, what kind of risk can there be in receiving healing? I'm glad you asked. The first thing is this. You have to risk being disappointed. How long? 12 years. 12 years she's been for 12 years, she's gone to doctor, to doctor, to doctor. For 12 years, she's tried everything. For 12 years, she's given everything. The scripture actually says is that she's broke. I mean, she doesn't have anywhere else to go. She doesn't have anything. Think about the level of disappointment she's experienced in her life. I mean, I've I've done this, I've done that, and nothing's actually happened to me. And think about the risk that she had to take to say now, I've heard about this Jesus guy. I've heard that he's healed people. But so what if it doesn't work for me? What if? What if? See, an issue's been around a while. And you've talked about it before to God. And all I'm saying is to just reach out to him one more time. Risk being disappointed. You have to take that risk and reach out Here's the second thing. Is that you have to risk being embarrassed. What problem did she have? She bleeding. She'd been bleeding. And in those days, you think it's embarrassing now to be bleeding that long a time. In those days, it was even worse. For a woman to be bleeding, she was ceremoniously unclean. And because she was ceremoniously unclean, she actually had to declare herself unclean to other people around her. And so if you can imagine... As a good Jew, following Jewish principles and Jewish cleansing teachings in the Old Testament, she had to walk around, and when someone came within 10 feet of her, she had to say, unclean, unclean, you can't touch me, you can't be near me, because if they touched her, they would have been ceremoniously unclean, and they wouldn't have been allowed to worship, and so for 12 years... She wasn't allowed to worship for 12 years. She had to walk around and tell people there was something wrong with her. I mean, it would be like today walking in and saying, "You know what? I didn't take a shower this morning, so I probably stink a little bit. So I stink, I stink. You don't want to hug me this morning because I stink." Everybody, I mean, nobody wants to do that. But that's exactly what she did for years. It's embarrassing. Anybody watch The Biggest Loser on TV? Absolutely love that show. It's a, it's a great show. One of the things that when I first started watching it, I just couldn't understand how they could do the weights I mean, these guys are up there, and they're really big, you know, 350-plus pounds. And, you know, they're having to go up there with shorts and no shirt. And I would watch on TV, and I'd be like, man, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could stand in front of And then the women are in, you know, these, these shorts clothes that don't really hide much you know, I show the whole figure and they're having to stand up there in front of millions of people across the country and and I just, I thought to myself I couldn't really, I couldn't really do that. Until God started dealing with me about my weight. Until God started dealing with me about where I had let myself go and how much I weighed. And we were doing a, I've told you about the biggest loser thing that we did or the lose to serve thing that we did at like Chartel and we want a house for a family in our church, and, and I was leading that, and, and I was because I was leading that, I had to be the one up front telling my story over and over and over again. I had to tell people how much I weighed. I had to tell people how much I lost. I had to tell people, you know, where I was at along the journey. And let me tell you what, it, it felt It felt a little embarrassing. And it felt kind of humiliating to say, hey guys, I'm the biggest guy in the church. I weigh more than all of you. I mean, you know, It's just it's just what it is. And and, and at the very beginning, it, it, it was kind of an embarrassment for me. But as I told my story over and over and over again, the embarrassment just started to wash away. I've had people say on Sunday mornings after after I preached here at other places, I can't believe you told that story. I mean, you, you're really brave to get up there. And here's the deal. Is that I tell my stories, and unfortunately sometimes I tell our stories. Too, and I'm really sorry when I do that. And the reason I tell those stories... It's because I know many of you are experiencing the exact same stories. And if you don't hear that people struggle with you, you can begin to feel isolated and alone. Here's the deal. We love putting masks on, right? We love hiding what's really going on in our lives. We love hiding, you know, what's being said and the struggle that we're having at home. But at some point, we just have to pull back the mask and tell our story. We're embarrassed of the addiction. We're embarrassed of the habit. We're embarrassed our marriage is struggling. We're embarrassed our finances are where they are. And we can't find the strength to tell the story. And they get so big and so big that by the time you do tell the story, sometimes it's just too late. See, a woman, she had to risk embarrassment. She had to risk somebody recognizing her and saying, hey, you're not supposed to be here. You're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to be in this crowd. But she risks it nonetheless. And here's the last thing about risk is that you have to risk being vulnerable. Being vulnerable. So you're not afraid to expose what you're going through. Not just as, Not just to God, but to other people. When you look in the story, you know, she has this issue. The scripture says that she kind of sneaks up on Jesus, right? She she doesn't say, hey, Jesus, stand in front of him, touch, but she just kind of sneaks up aside and reaches out and grabs his cloak just real quickly. And it says in that moment, the power leaves Jesus. And here in this moment, she she had a free escape. I mean, she could have just, like, backed out of the crowd, turned around, and walked off, right? But Jesus says, hey, 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 who, who touched me? Now, this woman, I mean, she's got to be weighing it in her head, right? I mean, the healing's already been done. She's already been set free. She doesn't really have to stand in front of Jesus and say, hey, it was me. You know, thanks for healing me. She could have got out of there without being noticed. But she doesn't. She was vulnerable. The scripture says that she knelt in front of Jesus and told him what? Everything. Jesus, this is it. This is my story. This is the last 12 years. This is what I've done. This is everything. And here's the deal. This is what I want you to process for a second. Is that Don't you think that the Son of God already knew the story? I mean, the Son of God already knew who touched him. The Son of God already knew that healing had left his body. The Son of God already knew her story. I mean, he had all of that knowledge inside of him. So why did he ask the question? And the reason that I believe he asked the question is that there was probably someone else in the crowd bleeding too. Just not bleeding her way. There was probably someone else in the crowd that had some sort of deep pain. There was somebody else in the crowd that needed to hear that story and needed to know that if Jesus can do that, he can do this for me. We have to risk being vulnerable. The story tells us that we have to risk getting down and just saying, this is it. This is all of me. This is what's happening in my life. This is what God has saved me from. And I believe he can do that saying, you're not the only one hurting in the room. And other people need to hear your story too. So this story, this woman, tells us that your pain doesn't have to be terminal to be there. It tells us to not just follow Christ, to touch him that you have to be willing to take risks. And here's this last thought, and I think it's the most beautiful. It says that your pain, whatever it is, is Christ's special. Your pain, whatever it is, is Christ's special. Jesus was on his way to touch a dying girl, right? And he had exactly what that little girl needed to be well. Exactly what she needed to be but he also had exactly what this woman needed and whatever her need was. And can I tell you this morning that whatever it is you need, whatever healing you need for your family, whatever healing you need for your job, whatever healing you need for your kids, whatever healing you need, whatever it is, that is Christ's specialty. You. You just it again? Look at Did the scripture I put in your notes. You Matthew 4, 24. It says, Whatever there's sickness or disease, or if they were demons possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, read this last few words to be healed Say to be healed. Okay, all right, What a beautiful promise I that is for you. I and, for you. I so that, and what that means is that Jesus can Actually, be shed through epistemic. And it doesn't matter what feel. it what is, and it, it doesn't matter how feel. long it's been, you don't have to yeah, wait twelve years like this woman to receive you can do it now, today for whatever it is you're going through. It could have happened this morning, it could have happened this week, it could have happened last month or last year. It could be scar tissue from some past abuse. It could be some person, a name that just, whenever you hear that name, it just brings up just that bile in your throat or that wound, that scar, that scab just pulled over. Whatever it is controlling you, this morning you can receive healing too. Maybe something you've done, that you're disappointed in. Something that you need to bring out to the open. Tell a friend. Or a family member. Maybe it's a marriage, it's on the cross. Whatever it is, the scripture says he healed them all. There was a whole crowd of people there. But she touched them.